This is The Dog and Bone. Welcome to The Dog and Bone, a series of podcasts brought to you by Propeller Group. I'm Martin Lote, curator of The Dog and Bone. In each episode, you'll listen in to a conversation between two senior people at the sharp end of business change and transformation, with their permission, of course. Our two guests will chat and question each other as equals, exploring industry topics and stories from their careers. Hopefully, they'll dig up some tasty morsels for us to chew on. In this Dog and Bone special, recorded during the Can Lion Festival, Catherine Jacob, CEO of Pearl and Dean, had a chat with Michael Brunt, publisher of The Economist. They talk about the challenges facing the traditional media they run. As well as heading up cinema sales house Pearl and Dean, Catherine is a champion of workplace diversity and is co-author of The Glass Wall, Success and Strategies for Women at Work. For full disclosure, Pearl and Dean is also a Propeller client. Michael has worked at The Economist since 2006 in a variety of roles and is now responsible for managing both reader and advertising revenues. He started his working life in ad agencies with stints at McCann Erickson and EHS Bran. The Economist is marking its 175th anniversary this year and as part of the celebrations launched Open Future, a global conversation to make the case for liberal values and politics in the 21st century. Topics touched on by the pair include how the reality of the cinema experience means it can't offer mobile data to brands and why The Economist's print edition is still thriving in a supposedly digital world. We also learn why The Economist launched a marketing campaign around insect ice cream and Catherine explains how a dangerous handbag could be a real liability during an important client meeting. The pair begin their relaxed discussion talking about the value of traditional media and the positive contribution to social debate made by both film and journalism. There's a special mention of the superhero film, The Black Panther. So, you and I are both in what is, you know, derisively known as traditional media, (laughs) but I like to call trusted media and valued media. Your brand is hugely strong. I mean, you know, we've talked about this, which is there is a thing which is if you go on a long plane journey and someone gets on clutching a copy of The Economist, you think, I really hope they're sitting next to me because I'm going to be sitting (laughs) next to someone who's, you know, interested and interesting. And and it's that whole thing. It's that Henry Kissinger thing you did. Henry Kissinger commercial, yeah, where um, the guy's on a plane and uh, he's wondering who's going to sit next to him and um, realises that it's going to be Henry Kissinger and he sinks into the... into his seat wishing that he'd uh, read The Economist that morning yeah. so he could hold a conversation. Yeah, I mean, that's, that's, what, we, that's what we stand for. Um, we, are, we are really well known, but, we're, but actually in amongst our target audience, we're not that well known. So there are, um, you know, my biggest marketing challenge is actually to grow awareness of The Economist. Now, in our industry and in the, in the, in certainly within the media industry, we're incredibly well known. But I've worked out there are 76 million people in the world who ought to be reading The Economist. And I sell to one and a half million every week. Um, which I've positioned to our shareholders as an enormous opportunity and not a great failing on my part that now we've got <laughs> 76 million circulation. But, um, but actually our biggest challenge is awareness and, and, and sort of showing what we stand for as an organisation as well. But we were set up to be campaigning. We, we were set up originally to repeal the Corn Laws. So this was yeah. the landed gentry, price fixing, and uh, we, we were campaigning that that price fixing was what was really leading to the, the starvation that was happening at the time. And I think it's important for us now, um, in, the, in, the, in the era that we live in, where you know, globalisation is almost a dirty word, where, the, where, where countries are pulling up the drawbridge, yeah. um, and there's a sort of increasing isolationism, that we need to make a stand again. Um, and actually, 
show what we you know go back to our kind of campaigning roots is what yeah. we're what our editor-in-chief is launching tonight which is we're calling open future <coughs> which is our way of bringing together the the really um, polarized opinions that are existing in our world. So we're trying to bring those two sides together in a in a in a respectful environment and have a and have a debate. Um, so we've been running a series of essays with guest speakers, um, contributing content. We've been running a um, an essay competition. We've been running online debates, um, and then we're going to finish all of this in a big uh, a big um, event that, that crosses the world on, in in mid September. So that's why we're kind of here, and I think. If we look at our value, you know, certainly Brexit, certainly Trump, we know that a lot of new people turn to us as a as a trusted brand and as a, as as a trusted uh, trusted journalism um, to see what the implications would be. Um, so sometimes, you know, adversity in the world is actually beneficial for us because people want to know what's going on and what what how is how is it going to impact their lives. We're here to analyse the news, come back with uh, with our viewpoint, but it's firmly from a liberalised social um, causes that we stand for, and the and free market liberalised capitalism that we also stand for as well. But that's what I love about it, though, is the fact that in a in a world where what social media does, it perpetrates the echo chamber, yeah. which is you know, and if you put your head above the parapet, I mean, I read, I finished reading Jess Phillips' um, book, uh, and um, this the the vitriol that she gets yeah, on online you know from Twitter and things like that purely because she disagrees with someone and I think you know uh, I was talking to someone the other day who said that you know the interesting thing about you know the old days is at least you had to get up and go and buy some paper and an envelope and then walk and post a letter to yeah. people now you can sit at home feeling angry and just you know, write off a tweet, and it's, and it's anonymous. Yeah. And then what happens is there's no, there's no comeback. No. You know, and one of the most interesting things you've ever seen on the internet is those people who do the criticism who go, yeah, well, you know, da, da, da. and it is that kind of you know keyboard yeah. warrior kind of thing. Yeah. And you and you can live in an echo chamber where all you ever do is you just follow the people who reflect what you think rather than listening to it. The thing that I love about the Economist is the fact that it's like having a super smart friend. It's like having the best informed friend who can yeah. tell you what's going on in a really Weekly, and it's not that kind of thing. Where yeah, you, I, I don't. F I think the Economist is. I mean, we is interesting because we 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 tend to be fiscally conservative in you know non-government intervention in the markets, but also we believe in the non-government intervention in the way that people choose to lead their lives. So we've been campaigning for same-sex marriage. We're one of the first big publications to do so globally. Um, and we lost readers as a result of that. We've campaigned for the right to die, and we've lost readers as a result of that. But we also, you know, we, we've uh, we've supported um, free market, free open trade, open immigration, and we lose readers for that as well. So, because in the for so many countries that a fiscally conservative um, political party will also be um, linked to a socially conservative. The globalisation issues, um, you know, playing that back to cinema. Yeah. You know, if you look at Black Panther, it's yeah. the first time there has ever been an all, yeah. you know, Bane cast. Yeah, no, it's amazing. It's remarkable. And I think that interesting thing about what journalism and content can do is yeah. it can present things to people globally. Yeah. I mean, amazingly, Black Panther did brilliantly in China, which is not... You know, trying to get... A, trying to get films into China yeah. is really hard yeah. because they run quite a strict censorship regime. Um, so I think they allow in 35 foreign films a year. Black Panther was hugely successful yeah. there. Wonder Woman was hugely successful. Yeah. And that's really big kind of, 
liberal ideas, yeah. the kind that you're talking yeah. about, that are going global, um, and that it's interesting, isn't it, that they're yeah. being presented by our, our yeah. traditional traditional media, it's, it's so, and the things yeah. who are kind of holding up all the new, all all the ideas around diversity. Yeah, you know. Um, uh, about uh, in all sorts of shapes. I think we should celebrate when there is great, great uh, representation of diversity on screen. It's, it's interesting that our that our industry, the media industry, tends to be um, relatively diverse in comparison to other, but that's off screen and behind the camera. And yet there aren't that many instances of diversity that are celebrated positively. Um, and there's, a, there's a level of diversity behind the camera. Less than 10% um, of films in, in Hollywood last year were, were, were um, directed by women. So there's an interesting thing now that um, Shonda Rhimes is doing about putting uh, women yeah. behind the camera all the way it's through. Got it. There's a long way to go. It's also in the creative industry. We, we, uh, you know, we, we've traditionally had a more male than female readership yeah. and, and, our, and yet our target audience is completely 50-50 male and female. The people who ought to be reading Economist, the 76 million I talked about earlier on, are completely 50-50 male and female. Um, so I got all our agencies together, um, I'm not going to quote any names, but I got all our agencies together to, to say to them, so what do we need to do? How do we need to change our messaging? How do we need to be at least gender, gender neutral? Mm. Um, and all of them sent their creative directors, all of them are men. Yeah. So we were in a room full of men from our agencies to talk about how we were going to make our creative messaging more more gender balanced, and I've just called the meeting to an end. <laughs> I mean, just it's just, but that's and you know yeah. there is, there's a long way to go, um, but there are pockets of uh, of diversity that should be celebrated. And, and last year we we and this year as well we we've been. Um, Supporting a uh, an awards in the UK called Diversity in Media. Limited. I know, and Pearl and Dean have been yeah. nominated. Well, right, We're which delighted. Is, which, by is, that. which is fantastic, and we've been we've been helping judge the, some of the categories. Um, and my CFO, who's who's profoundly deaf, and is also the chairman of the Royal Institute of the Deaf. Um, it's really really important to him as well that there are um, positive representation of people with disabilities on screen as well, because because you know. Diverse people are there off screen, but you know we talk a lot about what doesn't need to be done. What do does need to be done, but we don't do a lot of celebrating when it is done. So but I, I, th do I think the other thing about the I think we've kind of seeded into one of yours and my favourite things, which is diversity. <laughs> yes. But I think the other thing about um, you know our type of media is that the power of brand in a really cluttered yeah. world to give really really kind of very very clear messaging yeah. is is huge. What we've done is we've morphed through time yeah. to be reflective rather than reactive which I think is a really great thing about both of our brands is that what we do is we don't just jump onto a bandwagon there's a measured approach primarily yeah. from our point of view because it takes so long to make a film and yeah, get it distributed yeah. and from your point of view because it has to be intellectually mm. rigorous yeah. and I think that's the interesting thing that people trust us for is the is the element that we have, which is that we're kind of a beacon. Yes. Or, you know, I mean, not so much as we're just kind of associated with cinema, but, but film is a beacon of um, refuge and stimulation and, and the ability to kind of reflect culture, but in a, in a measured and, and, and not, you know, yeah, just caught up in the moment way. And I think the role of film is, is not just to reflect society, but also to stand for something better. Mm. Um, and I think that's what journalism should do as well. You've got to say 
something needs to something needs to be done. We've got to stand for something. We've got to we've got to be brave, and we've got to you know. And that means you know the Economist is circulated all around the world, and we know for a fact that the views you know on our front cover, we know that the the the, the leading articles that we're publishing um, will absolutely not reflect the societal norms in many of the countries that were sold and yeah. I think I'm really proud of that. Well I also love the fact that when you do your um, wake up can I think um, I think that um, Syl was talking about the she was on the panel on Monday and she was talking about um, how Diageo is is reflecting to change so changes in the economy what she's done about certain brands yeah I think she had a she had one brand that was premium that was a rum brand in a in a country that got hit and then they started rolling out Buchanan's yeah. which is a kind of a, a lower cost brand but she talked about um, which I thought was really interesting seeing it was on the economist stage as well talking about how the economic realities how how Diageo is kind of adapted to reflect that and that the, their embracing of, of, of technology and new challenges still remains rooted in what their brand essentials are. Yeah. And, and she also did a quote where she said, you know, we all need to wake up to the power of, of women, which was obviously resonated hugely yeah, for me. Yeah, we do. Um, and I really, really love that because what she's doing is she's seeing a development in the marketplace that, you know, Bailey's isn't traditionally a female drink. They're now doing whiskies for women. Yeah. They're now doing all sorts of different things. They're waking up to the to the spending power of women. So, is there a global consumer then, or are there different kind of? Yeah, I, you know, I had a really good conversation about this yesterday. I think I have an easy job at the Economist in some ways. The Economist appeals to a, a, a very select sort of person. It is self-selecting the content and. Um, those those people who are engaged with the world economy, um, who read our, read the, the Economist, um, are very similar to each other, um, and probably we'll get an Economist reader that in say the Netherlands, and an Economist reader in Sao Paulo, an Economist reader in Seoul. You put them together, and they'll have a huge amount in common. Mm. Um, they might have different views, but they have a huge amount in common in the way that they engage with the world and that they feel their places in the world. Um, so. Quite, our consumers are actually more common to each other than the, perhaps they may have qualities that are consistent with each other than perhaps with their fellow country folk. So to that extent, marketing to them, we can use the same creative, we can create, we do a, we do a global marketing strategy, there is local execution, but in, in, my, in my little world, the, the, our consumer is actually, is actually a global consumer and is, is a very sort of particular, um, uh, particular target audience. But even so, um, I don't think you can just run a marketing strategy without without a local execution. Yeah. And I think I'd rather be um, hyper global and hyper local in the way that we we approach marketing. We don't have a Southeast Asian approach or a South American approach. Um, we 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 look at it from a you know what are the commonalities across our target audience, and then go very local. Um, but you only have. But you've got one creative agent. Something you've worked with Abbott Mead for forever, forever, thirty odd years. Yeah. yeah, And we we continue to work with them. We also work with their sister digital agency, Proximity, and that's yeah. been a very long held relationship as well. I mean, clearly they know our brand inside out, and they're great to work with. But we also work with local um, experiential agencies. Um, we've been recently 
um, a really, really successful campaign um, by giving people insect ice cream. I know, I saw it. It was brilliant. Yeah. I love that because it's that kind of thing about yeah. bringing the global nature of yeah. the economist to life. Yes, and it, and it appeals to, so, you know, we have trikes going around and it says free ice cream, and but it's got these pictures of insects and people think, what on earth is this? Um, so it appeals to the globally curious anyway, which is our target audience. So they come over and they, you know, they say, why on earth are you giving away ice cream with bits of insects in it? Um, and there is a really good reason. We wrote an article that there are two billion people in the world that eat insects regularly as part of their diet. If we were to all join them, we could have a, an environmentally friendly, sustainable and cheap source, a very nutritious source of protein. Um, it's low fat. Um, there is a particular taste. Um, we commissioned a gelateria in Italy to create four flavours for us. Yeah. Um, one that's got mealworms, one that's got sort of mixed bits of insects, and, and they are actually sort of fried, so there's just sort of crunchy bits in the insects. And actually it's a really great way of getting So it's just a bit like chocolate buttons? Um, yes, <laughs> with, with the added advantage of an hour later you, you find that there is a wing stuck in your teeth. You're listening to the Dog and Bone podcast from Propeller Group. If you're enjoying it, please share the link with your network. Subscribe on iTunes or your normal podcast provider. And if you're feeling really inspired, please write a review to help us zoom up the charts. Now, back to the conversation. So, Catherine, I'm really interested. Um, in an, in an, an era of social media and, and everything has to be digital, um, why is cinema still going strong? And, and, and what, what, are the, what are the threats that you face as well? What are your challenges? I th- that's a good question. I think the challenges that we face are proving our saliency in a kind of a, yeah. a very fragmented world because it's a it's an experience. I mean yes. that's the interesting thing about the experience is that it's a planned experience. It's a you know no one ever just goes, I, I'm just walking past a cinema, I think I'll just pop in and see what's happening. You know, you'll have yeah. a vague idea um, a, about what you want to do, but, you know, as is ever thus with us, we are dependent on two things in terms of it's either the power of the film slate, so if you've got a year with James Bond in, it's like Christmas because brands love James Bond, and even if the economy is a bit mm, so so you can still guarantee you'll get a chunk of money around James Bond. Of course. Um, new one next year, it's going to be interesting. Fantastic. Danny Ball directing. Um, so, uh, and um, and then you can have a rising ad economy, and even if you've got a so-so film slate, um, you know, you'll do okay because the ad market's quite buoyant anyway. Yeah. The worst thing is when you get a so-so economy and a so-so film slate, and we have no control over any yeah, of that. Of course, of course, that is and, and and so that's your issue. And the other issue that the industry faces generally is that what digital's done for us is we've gone from releasing 450 films in the UK to 900 per year. So that proliferation of content. What we say to audiences is we're a bit like Facebook, which is we can segment audiences much yeah. better. Yeah. Because you've got much more 35 plus content now with things like Mary Queen of Scots coming out and First Man. Yeah. The issue about brands is that brands then go, well, all right then, but that is more a tradition. You see 35 pluses isn't cinema 16 to 24. And you go, well, yeah, we're still delivering 16 to 24s. And in fact, the interesting thing for us is that Facebook and social media is part of the thing because it's part of the cinema journey. We all decide we're going to meet on a Friday and we all want to go and see Ocean's 8. 
which I know that you know we all, we all would go and see Ocean's Eight, and then social media will be part of that journey, which yeah. is the whole yeah, thing of, of where are we meeting, are we doing this, da 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 da. Yeah pictures of you yeah of course sitting in your reclining chair with yeah. a glass of wine and all that yeah, kind of thing absolutely. and then afterwards saying to your friends you've really got to go and see this or if you're really unfortunate as a distributor people going that's two hours of my life I'll never get back again yeah not that that happens very but for, and as a brand I mean um, we've run cinema advertising and to us the you know that that hype that targeting that hyper targeting based on the type of film and you know yeah. that it's going to attract a very distinct audience it's also such a positive environment for a brand yeah. to, to be in as well. Um, but, the, but the difficulty is, is that when people are there for the two hours, they're not on a they're not on a phone. So we have people saying, "Can you give? Can you tell?" Well, no, I can't tell you what they're doing because they've all switched their phones off. Yeah. So one of the challenges we face is that people going, "Well." we can't talk to them on their phones. No, because... Because they're watching a film. They're yeah. watching a film. <laughs> and also the other thing as well is, you know, it is one of my kind of um, slightly touchy points, which is people saying, you don't have third-party data verification. Well, I go, yeah, we do. It's called the box office, you know. Otherwise, I'd be sitting there every weekend going, 46 people, 46 million people went to the cinema weekend this weekend. You wouldn't know. It's all compiled, and that's how... That, and and it really has to be true because that's how cinemas get yeah. paid by how they how they pay distributors, and distributors yeah. know, you know. So it's the fundamental thing, and people are giving me a hard time because I can't tell you what people are doing in that precise moment. And yeah. that's our challenge: is the fact that we are held to a standard of medium that are part of the ecosystem of our ecosystem. But we're not part of theirs. That's our that's our difficulty, yeah. and the fact that um, you know it, it is also that other thing as well, which is um, you know we can predict based on pre you know we do modelling of films. Yeah, of so we think a film is going to do thirty five million at the box office, yeah. and it comes out and it turns out that you know you and I may as well have just recorded you know songs from the shows very badly at three in the morning and that's that's how it plays so we think yeah. it's going to do 35 million dollars 20 we've got no control over that yeah. I mean it's the William Goldman phrase you know in Hollywood no one knows anything yeah that is still true no, is despite pre-testing yeah. and also the fact that you can get huge anticipation of films online which you think is going to signal and then the film comes out people are bitterly disappointed yeah. and if it's that's our challenge is the whole thing or is that it's proliferation of content and it's yeah. being held to a measurement level that isn't reflective of of what our yeah. medium does yeah you know I don't know anybody else where you know or, or or most AV medium where people pay to watch your ads yeah and it's just no. and, and and they're there and you yeah. can't escape it and, and and in a in a world of a proliferation of, yeah. of content People have chosen to, it's like your brand, people have chosen to spend time with it. And I think John Hegarty made an interesting point this this week, which was brands contribute to digital landfill by just having these always-on strategies. Actually, I don't want you always to be on. I think there's some interesting viewpoints around the fact that if you're a brand that are advertising to parents, the majority of children in the UK are born in September, interestingly, post the Christmas holidays because everyone's got a lot of time to make babies. Yes. And also there's nothing else to do apart from repeats on the television. Yes. Yeah. Unless, of course, there's a Star Wars film now. Yes. Mary Poppins is out this year, it'll be fine. <laughs> um, but, you know, there's a thing there. So, And everyone looks at 
being around all the time, yeah. but actually that can become wallpaper rather than distinctive. And it is that issue about how you how you turn experiences and specialness and uh, into value, actually. So I'm interested, after having talked about my digital challenge, about how The Economist is dealing with the balance of kind of like the printed copy. Versus the digital. Part. Yeah, versus the digital. Well, um, we... So when we sell subscriptions to new subscribers, um, we don't sell them a digital subscription or a print subscription. We sell them the value of the editorial, and then we lay out the options. And there are three options. You can have a print subscription, a digital subscription, or both. Um, and really consistently across all age groups, the slight majority choose both. So just about 55% of our new subscribers choose to pay 25% more to take out a print and digital subscription. And of the rest, it's about half and half digital only and print only. Yeah. Um, which, um, I was looking back at the five-year plans I did five years ago, which is always really dangerous. Yeah, never do that. Yeah, I, don't, never know why, I don't know what I was thinking, yeah. but anyway. And, and I thought that, um, you know, at that point we were, we were sort of um, seven or eight years into the rise of uh, digital consumption. Our first app was iPad first. Um, we hadn't predicted how much content people would consume on mobile devices. Our, our latest app we launched, we've just launched, is, is, is certainly mobile first. Um, I thought five years ago that I would have be saving 40 odd million pounds a year not having to distribute the print copies of The Economist. Um, but actually, that's not been the case at all. So, depending on how you look at it, 75% of our subscribers choose print, but also 75% choose digital because just over half. Choose, choose both. Um, and another curious thing that we found is that the, in, a, in amongst a younger audience, this goes back to your, your, your thought at the beginning around uh, you know, recognising when someone's on the plane, if they've read The Economist, that you can have a good conversation, um, that our younger audience, sort of 18 to 25, are slightly more likely to take print only than digital only. And I think we, you know, when we ask them about that, it's about it's, it's wanting the, the, they appreciated the craftsmanship of the journalism, but also wanting to have a copy of The Economist it's also easy to share in your share around yeah. your shared dorm or your shared flat or something as well. Um, or so in my case, around your sixth form, which is what well, around, exactly, does. yeah. yeah. Um, and there is a badge. There's a badge to reading the Economist, and and that's and and that's something that is appealing to our younger audience as well. There's been a huge amount of disruption, digital disruption in our industry. Our, um, I mean, my my goal is to harness that disruption and turn it into success. The social media is a is is a is a place where people consume news content more than ever before, yeah. and there's a big proportion of of the Western world where people's only only source for news is actually on social media. Really? Yeah, which is which is especially going back to your point around echo chambers and only seeking out and uh, and uh, surrounding yourselves with views that that that. that that support your own and never seeking out an alternative opinion is, is, is scary. But on the flip side, social media has also enabled me to reach audiences that we would never have reached. And um, nearly all what I do is sampling. I do content marketing. And um, the content that I'm sharing is also the content that we're asking people to buy. And so social media has been an amazing way for me to, to reach new audiences at the same time. So, Michael, um, 
without you know name, yeah. naming and shaming anybody no. or ruining your future career, which obviously won't happen. <laughs> genius. But can you tell me your most embarrassing business mistake? Yes, I can. Um, I once set up a meeting with a very well-known airline, um, and my my meeting was to tell them that um, we were no longer going to be giving away the copies of the Economist for free. But if the airline wanted to have copies, I'd, I'd like them to pay for it. Um, I hadn't really got much experience in talking and negotiating with the procurement um, people at airlines who are very good at procurement. And um, so I went into this meeting very naive and said, you know, hello everybody, thank you very much for having me. I won't say which airline, but it, it was in continental Europe. Okay. And, um, and said, oh, you know, I've just come to talk to you about our new pricing strategy. And uh, the meeting... Um, when I explained to them that The Economist was no longer going to be available for them for free, I actually got physically marched out of the offices. Um, oh and that's goodness. never ever happened to me. And their offices, um, not in the city centre, it's like a campus in the middle of nowhere. And I was literally dumped by the side of the road. Um, and then they disappeared back into the building and there was no means of getting a cab. This was pre-Uber and pre-Gaps. Oh my goodness. I was literally stranded. I managed to um, hitch a lift back to the nearest <laughs> town from, from a friendly employee. But, um, and I'm actually very proud to say that two weeks later, because of demand on board, they came and said, we will pay your prices. So very I good. triumphed. What about yours? Uh, oh, well, mine is... <laughs> I mean, yours is just being marched out of building. Mine is um, when... Um, and I can tell this now with the distance of time. Um, when I was um, younger, we had a client at the place that I was working at the time who'd been quite tricky and no one had been able to establish a rapport and I worked really, really hard on it. And then um, I eventually got him to agree to come out to lunch with me and the lunch went really well and I thought this is really great. And we're chittering and chattering and I asked for the bill for lunch. I put my handbag on my um, knee, I'm still talking, as I pull my wallet out to get my credit card out to pay for lunch, a Tampax shot out of my bag and literally missed his head by about three inches. Uh-oh. And I was mortified. <laughs> I mean, having having sat through some um, cocktails and curation with Mediacom earlier this week, doing the uh, titanium and glass entries, there's a lot of there's a lot of period ads going on in the world <laughs> at the moment. But this was pre when anyone anyone ever spoke about it, and I was so mortified. I mean, I don't know what in retrospect, you know, I don't know why, but it's just that thing, and it was the first time I spent time with him, and it was just awful. So I spent the whole of the next period just not meeting him because I didn't know what I'd say to him face to face. <laughs> and I and I didn't think he'd bring it up on the phone. And then we did this whole thing where eventually I kind of had to meet him face to face again. And he said, gosh, you've been really elusive. You know, we had such a great lunch and, and da-da-da-da-da. And I thought we'd gotten really well together. And then we've not been able to meet. And I said, oh, well, that's because... And I just thought, I'm just going to front it. And I said, that's because but the last time we met when I was going to pay the bill, I literally almost physically assaulted him using, <laughs> using, using sanitary protection and he said oh god I thought that was just one of those little diary pens that you get <laughs> so I spent this whole year and it's just the most embarrassing thing ever That's, so it was it was just that really really dreadful thing I know I mean it's just the it's not as bad as a friend of mine who once walked through it through the entire um, you know stretch of a, of a client's reception with her dress tucked up into her knickers. Yeah. Yeah, that's much worse. I mean, at least this was a one-on-one. Yeah. 
That's a fabulous story, Catherine. Thank you very much. It's really made me chuckle. It's been really good to talk to well, you. Well, I'm so glad, Michael, that I was able to bring a, a little little lightness <laughs> into your... Uh, uh, well, yeah, as you always do into mine. Thank you oh, so much. you're welcome. Bye. Cheers. Thanks for joining us on The Dog and Bone. Please subscribe to the podcast, and if you have any questions or suggestions, do get in touch via our website, dogandbone.dog, or send us an email at woof at dogandbone.dog.